If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of Haggai. If you don't have a Bible and you want to read along, uh, you are more than welcome to use one of Crossway's Pew Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Uh, you'll find our text on page 743 of that Bible. If you use any other Bible, I can't help you with a page number. Haggai is a very small book. It only uh, two chapters comprised of a mere 38 verses. It's the second smallest book in the entire Old Testament, right behind Obadiah, which Pastor Doug has already led us through in this sermon series. In addition, excuse me, in addition to being a short book, uh, it is also, um, it covers a relatively short span of time, a mere four months, give or take, from start to finish. Despite that, it deals with a fairly significant event in Jewish history. And so rather than assume that everyone here is versed in Old Testament history, I want to do a sort of uh, flyby at 30,000 feet to uh, get us all on the same page and to set the stage for our look into Haggai this morning. So Israel began as one nation made up of land allotments for each of the 12 tribes. Following the Jewish conquest of the promised land under Joshua, after their 40 years of wandering in the desert and the death of Moses, God had established his covenant with the Israelites that if they would faithfully follow his commands and statutes, he would be their God and they would be his chosen people. In time, the Israelites decided that they wanted to be like the surrounding nations and be led by a king rather than by God. God granted their request and he gave them Saul as king. After Saul died, David became king, and after David died, his son Solomon became king of Israel. God allowed Solomon to build a permanent temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. It was a, a beautiful and ornately built and furnished building. 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11 uh, tell us that when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Following the death of King Solomon, uh, the, tw the ten northern tribes rejected Solomon's son as king, and the nation split into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom continued to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom, because it was made up of only Judah and the much smaller Benjamin, uh, was called Judah. Both kingdoms had a succession of wicked kings that led them into uh, covenant unfaithfulness through idolatry and other detestable practices to God. So in about 722 BC, God sent the Assyrians to capture Israel and to carry its people off into exile. Judah held out a bit longer, but they continued in their wickedness. So in 586 BC, the Babylonians leveled Jerusalem. They tore down its walls, they burned Solomon's temple to the ground, and they carried off most of the people into exile. In 539 BC, Babylon was conquered by Persia under Cyrus the Great. In 538 BC, just one year later, Cyrus issued a decree that allowed the Jews to return home to Judah and to build their temple, rebuild the temple. A number of exiles made that trip home and they rebuilt the altar and they laid the foundation of the rebuilt temple. But then they found themselves facing opposition from some of the other uh, non-Jewish inhabitants of the land and temple construction stopped. And that brings us up to the book of Haggai. And as we dive in, the first point we'll consider is the sinfulness of self-interest. The sinfulness of self-interest. Follow along with me as I read Haggai 1 verses 1 through 11. 
In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. We don't get to know uh, really any personal or biographical details about Haggai. Unlike many other Old Testament Israelites, we're not told who his father was or where he hailed from. His name is not mentioned in the list of returning exiles in Ezra chapter 2, so we're not even sure when exactly he returned to Judah from exile. When Ezra refers to Haggai's and Zechariah's ministry in Ezra 5, he tells us that Zechariah is the son of Iddo, but there's nothing for us to go on about Haggai. He gives us no details. So Haggai remains a bit of a mystery man to us. However, assuming that Haggai himself wrote the book that bears his name, the prophet does us a favor in Haggai 1.1 by telling us he began his prophetic ministry on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of King Darius Hystaspes. This allows historians to do their math and to determine with a high degree of confidence that the events of the book of Haggai began on August 29, 520 B.C., and since Haggai had ready access to Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest to deliver God's messages to them, we can draw the conclusion that Haggai had some clout in the post-exilic community. So the word of the Lord comes to Haggai and he faithfully delivers it to the rulers of the returned Jews. And being an Old Testament prophet, the message he delivers is definitely not, good job guys. Instead, look how God begins in verse 2. He says, these people. Not my people, but these people. This is like when your kid does something bad and you look at your spouse and say, did you see what your child just did? <laughs> He's refusing to acknowledge the Jews as his own possession. He did something very similar when Moses was up on the mountain in Exodus and the Hebrews made themselves a golden calf to worship. God says to Moses in Exodus 32, 7, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. And as God continues to speak to Moses in, in Exodus 32, he says in verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
So right away, we know that God is not happy with the returned Jews. If Zerubbabel and Joshua knew the scriptures, then they knew that too. Even if they missed that cue, though, the next bit of God's word through Haggai made it very clear that they were in the wrong. God says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then he says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Let's be clear about something. God is not angry that they built houses for themselves. That's not the problem. It was expected that when the people returned to their own country, they would, they would resume life there. This would have obviously included rebuilding what had been destroyed, not just the temple, but also homes and businesses. They would have naturally sought renewed socioeconomic stability, and to do that, they would have needed houses to live in. God did not want them or expect them to try to find shelter in the, the ruins that the Babylonians had left behind when they destroyed Jerusalem. Houses are not the problem here. We get a glimpse of the problem in the adjective that describes the houses the Jews have constructed for themselves. God says they are paneled houses. The interior of Solomon's temple, the first temple, was described as being paneled in cedar wood, and that's very probably what we're seeing here in Haggai. The returning Jews had not just built houses, they'd built themselves opulent houses while neglecting God's house. And where did they get that cedar to panel their homes? Israel isn't known for its impressive cedar forests, so they didn't just go out and cut some down. So where had they gotten their hands on cedar to fancy up their newly built houses? Listen to Ezra 3.7, which describes the Jews' gathering of materials to use in the rebuilding of the temple. It says, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. King Cyrus had not just given his blessing to the Jews to return home and rebuild. He had also provided material resources for them to complete that work. But following the laying of the foundation, work on the temple had petered out. And for 16 years, there was no progress on that construction. It's like that white and red building out on Euclid that they've been working on for like 87 years. Work just ground to a halt. Somewhere in the course of that 16 years, though, it would seem that the Jews decided that the cedar that was originally intended for God's temple would look good in their own houses instead. Why let it go to waste, right? And that's really the problem here. That's what God is angry about. Not that the Jews had built themselves houses, but that their self-interest had displaced their love of God. They'd not only plundered the temple's construction materials for their own houses, essentially stealing from God, but they'd become totally content with letting the temple lie in ruins. Understand this. The temple was the representation of God's presence among the Jews. It stood for the unique covenant relationship between them. That's why God had filled the original temple with his glory in 1 Kings 8, as we've seen, to show that he dwelt in their midst because they were his chosen people and he was their God. God certainly didn't need a physical house to live in then any more than he needs one today. But the temple became the focal point of the Jews' very identity as the people of God. That was who they were first and foremost. They were the people of Yahweh, 
They alone, out of all the nations of the earth, had been brought into a covenant relationship with God. Anything else they were was secondary to their status as God's chosen people. Even as throughout Israel's history, they repeatedly uh, violated the Lord's commandments, they still banked on the fact that they were God's people, that everything would work out for them because God had chosen them. In fact, in the years leading up to the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem, there was a belief among the Jews that God was unable to leave the temple, which also meant that he was unable to leave his people. He was stuck there, they thought. Imagine their surprise then when Ezekiel shared with them the vision that he had received of God departing from the temple. In Ezekiel 10, 18 and 19, we read, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, that's Solomon's temple, and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Then in Ezekiel 11, verses 22 and 23, Ezekiel continues, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God abandoned the temple and the city, and then the Babylonians destroyed both temple and city. This would have been devastating to the Jews at the time as they saw their whole national and spiritual and cultural identity burned to the ground by a foreign army. And then they were led out of the promised land into exile and captivity in a strange land. They had truly lost everything as their just reward for their perpetual covenant unfaithfulness. And then 50 or so years later, God, through King Cyrus, allowed the Jews to return to the promised land and to rebuild the temple as a sort of renewal of their covenant relationship with him. They could get back to being God's people and reconstruct that focal point of their whole identity. But their initial enthusiasm for the project waned after they ran into persecution from the surrounding nations, and they stopped building. And stopping for a little while became stopping for a long while, and that long while stretched longer and longer until, for all intents and purposes, they forgot about God. They got used to seeing the rubble of the old temple as they built and paneled their homes and reopened their businesses and planted their crops and went about trying to get life back to normal. God became an afterthought, pushed to a back burner by their own ambitions and their own interests. And he wasn't going to allow that, so he afflicted them. Look at Haggai 1.9 again. God says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. So God had sent drought on the land, verse 11 tells us, which had impacted the yield of the three chief products of Israel, grain for eating, grapes for wine, and olives for oil. God needed to get their attention, so he struck them where it would hurt the most. They couldn't remain contented with the life that they had built for themselves if they uh, were crippled economically. They were there to rebuild, yes, but they were there to do it as the people of God. After initially being halted in the rebuilding of the temple by persecution, 
they'd gotten comfortable just doing their thing and leaving the, the involvement with God for another day. And there's a warning here for us as the true spiritual Israel, as those chosen by God to have saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do we do as the old covenant Jews did? Busying ourselves with our own interests and putting God on the back burner? Do we neglect the assembly of the Lord's people because there's something more entertaining we could be doing at that time? When a choice has to be made about coming to church or doing literally anything else, how quick are we to decide that missing a week of church won't hurt anything? Does anyone besides me sometimes decide that they're just too busy for Bible study or prayer, but then spend an hour or two scrolling through Facebook or watching Netflix or playing a video game or taking part in some other hobby? How much of a priority does God really hold in our hearts and in our daily lives and in our thoughts and in our affections and in the way we use our resources, our time and our money? Is God really first in our hearts? Don't misunderstand me, please. I'm not saying you can never miss church ever and every spare moment of your life has to be spent on your knees before God with a Bible in your hands. We can do all of those things and still not love God above all else. But if God is truly our top priority, if it's God and not ourselves sitting on the throne of our lives, then we'll order our lives rightly out of love and gratitude for him and we'll avoid the sinfulness of self-interest. Next, we're going to look at the reconciliation of repentance. The reconciliation of repentance. God sent Haggai to Governor Zerubbabel and High Priest Joshua to express his displeasure with the people and to command them to consider their ways, to go cut some wood, and to build the temple. And then something truly amazing happens. Let's read Haggai 1.12 through 2.19. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came up out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, 
and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were, but, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. So what was the amazing thing that happened when, Prophet, when Haggai came with the Lord's message? The people actually listened to him and obeyed. When we read through the prophets, it's sort of the norm for the people to uh, more or less completely disregard the prophet's message. In some cases, they even persecute the prophets for delivering God's message to them. Remarkably, though, in this particular case, the people reacted favorably to the message that was brought to them. The people feared the Lord. This word fear isn't talking about terror the way that some people are afraid of spiders or the dark or public speaking. Rather, it means a reverence and a respect for God that leads to a desire to please him. A, a loose analogy would be the relationship between me and my children. When, when I'm around my kids, they don't cower because they're afraid I'm going to hit them or hurt them. They are not afraid. When I tell them to do something, though, they do it both from a desire to please me and from a knowledge that disobedience brings consequence. The Jews' hearts were turned back to God as they repented of their sinful self-interest. The Lord once more took his rightful place in their thoughts, in their lives, in their affections. Immediately after we're told that the people feared the Lord in 112, God tells the people in verse 13, I am with you. The Jews aren't just these people anymore. God is promising his ongoing presence in their midst as they take up the work that he's called them to do. And as we see this, and we see this again in, in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where God says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
The Jews were not to fear anything as they took up the work of temple building once more. They didn't have to fear any outside interference or persecution from the other nations because God was with them. This is very similar to the commission that God gave to Joshua uh, to conquer the promised land. In Joshua 1.9, God assured Joshua, saying, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence acts as a fear repellent for his people. Consider the very familiar words of Psalm 23, verse 4. David says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's God's presence with David that caused him not to be afraid, even in dark places, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And so the returned remnant of the Jews are not to be afraid of anything or anyone as they take up the work that God has given them to do. And to further ensure they take confidence in him, God, through Haggai, calls himself the Lord of hosts. Growing up Catholic, this was always a really confusing term for me because host was what we called communion. So I always thought that God was calling himself the God of communion, which isn't untrue. It's just not what God is driving at here. That's not what this term means. Rather, it refers to the heavenly host or the, the armies of heaven. It has a very military sort of feel to it. God is a conquering general of an undefeatable angelic army. And when you've got that all-powerful conquering general on your side, you don't need to be afraid of anything. That was the promise that God was making to the Jews here. In verse 114, we get a good example of the, the beautiful tension between man's will and God's sovereignty. God calls the people to repent and get working on the temple. They're responsible to obey God's command. But in verse 14, we're told, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God gave them a command, and he expected them to obey it. But he also stirred up their spirit so that they would be able to obey it. We see this same tension in Paul's words to the church at Philippi. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Philippians were responsible for working out their salvation, while at the same time knowing it was God's work in them that enabled them to do that work in the first place. It's the same with the returned Jews in Haggai's time. The Lord expected their obedience to him, but he also worked in them to ensure that obedience. So where's the dividing line between man's will and God's sovereignty? It's a reality and a tension that even scholars are unable to fully explain. Regardless, the Jews get busy building that second temple. In Haggai 2, 10 through 19, God asked the priests a couple questions about ritual cleanness and uncleanness. And the key to understanding this passage is in verse 13. Haggai, speaking for God, says, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priests say, yeah, it does become unclean. And the point of the two questions is that ritual purity cannot be um, communicated through touch. 
but ritual impurity can. And the people are unclean. They're defiled. They've been living with the the dead, demolished carcass of the first temple in their midst since their return from exile. God says that because they're unclean, the, the offerings that they've been making on the altar are also unclean. They've been going through the motions of offering sacrifices to God all this time, even while their hearts were far from him, as evidenced by their 16-year neglect of his house. It was a form of legalism that they were guilty of. God wants our obedience to his will and his commands, but he wants that obedience to be motivated by love and reverence for him, not by some notion that we're earning ourselves get-out-of-hell-free cards by our, our going through the motions. In verses 15 through 19 of chapter 2, God reiterates that he's been the one responsible for the difficulties that they've been having with their produce. In chapter 1, he told them that he had sent a drought on the land. And now in chapter 2, he tells them that he's also sent blight and mildew and hail on the products of the land. But now, starting from the time they resumed their work on the temple, from the time they considered their ways and repented, God is going to bless them. And God does the same thing in people's lives today. He calls people to repent of their sins and to turn to him by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his only begotten son to live a sinless life, which man was and is incapable of doing. And when Jesus had completed his ministry on earth, the scriptures tell us God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can't be righteous on our own. We can't forsake sin on our own. We can't be made right before God on our own or by our own efforts. But Christ died on a cross and bore God's full and just wrath in our place so that we would be rescued from sin and death and the power of hell. If we repent of our sins, born of our own wicked self-interest, and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins then Christ's righteousness will be credited to our accounts and we will be made right with God. We will experience the reconciliation of repentance and will have eternal life in Christ's name. Now there is a difference between the results of our repentance and the results of the the Jews' repentance in Haggai's time. God promised them material blessings as a result of their repentance and obedience. Their crop yields would improve, which would improve uh, both their, their eating circumstances and their income. That was, in fact, a major part of the terms of the Old Covenant, that if the people would faithfully follow God's statutes and commands, God would make them prosperous in the Promised Land. But that's not a part of the New Covenant in Christ's blood. There's no promise of health and wealth for Christ's followers in this life, despite the claims of certain heretics. Our blessings that come from entering into covenant with God through Christ are spiritual rather than physical. For proof of this, look at Paul or Peter or really any of the apostles. None of them had riches or lives of ease. Most were ultimately killed for their faith. The only exception was John, and he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which contained quarries and mines that were worked by slaves and prisoners. Now, it's possible that John's advanced age... uh, exempted him from slave labor, but uh, despite that, Patmos was certainly not an idyllic retirement community for him. And yet, it was the hope of a heavenly home and the presence of God that kept the apostles busy about the Lord's work. 
They knew that this world wasn't their home, that they were strangers and aliens here. And that allowed them to endure all of the suffering and hardship that came from following Christ. We believers in Christ today can and should expect no better treatment from a world that is, by nature, hostile to God. We are unlike the Old Covenant Jews in that respect, but we are exactly like them in that, by faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God by repentance. Finally, this morning, we're going to consider the promise of future peace. The promise of future peace. Read with me Haggai 20 through, uh, I'm sorry, 2, 20 through 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You may have noticed, and you may not, that I haven't yet talked about Haggai 2, 6 through 9. I sort of skipped over it, and I did that on purpose. Because while it has a partial fulfillment in the time of Haggai, it's clearly an eschatological passage, and it sounds quite similar to Haggai 2, 20 through 23. If I just puzzled you with the term eschatological, it just means uh, dealing with or pertaining to the end of time. In both 2.6 and 2.21, God says he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. In 2.7, he says he is going to shake the nations. And in 2.22, he says he is going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and nations and overthrow their armies. In verse 7, God says the result of his shaking the nations is going to be that the treasures of the nations come into the temple. That's the part that was partially fulfilled in Haggai's time. King Darius issued a decree to his underlings that the Jews were to be allowed to do their work of temple building. And in Ezra 6.8, the king says, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Now, beyond the river was the name of a huge province uh, located within the, the Persian Empire, and that province included Judah. The province was located on the opposite side of the Euphrates River from Persia, and that's where it gets its very literal name, beyond the river. So uh, Darius was saying that the, the taxes and the tribute collected from the other nations in beyond the river were to bankroll the construction of the temple. So in this sense, the treasures of at least some of the nations did indeed come into the temple. But in its broader sense, God is talking about the end of the age, when the might of all the kingdoms of the earth will be brought down and will fall under the governance of the one true divine king in a kingdom that will never end. As I read earlier, it's recorded in scripture that God's glory came into Solomon's temple in a way that was recognizable to the priests and the people. And as I also read earlier, there's a record of God's glory departing from that same temple. When God tells the Jews that he will fill the rebuilt temple with glory in 2.7, 
they may have found themselves a bit confused after they finished construction in 505 BC because they didn't see the temple filled with a cloud like Solomon's temple had been. So how exactly would God fill this second temple with his glory? I believe we see the answer to this question in Luke 2 when the infant Jesus is presented at the temple as Mary and Joseph's firstborn son. Hebrews 1.3 tells us about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. God's glory came into that second temple in bodily form in a way much greater than it had come into the first temple. But even beyond the physical presence of Jesus in that second temple, Haggai 2 is using the temple as a type or a stand-in for a yet future temple, an eternal temple where God will dwell with his people forever. Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 7, give us a picture of this temple. Ezekiel says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the, God, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And just as the second temple of Haggai's day was a type of the future temple to come in the eternal kingdom, Zerubbabel himself is a type or a prefigure of the king that was and is to come. We know from scripture that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, or just Coniah, he had a few names, who was the last king of Judah before its destruction. Jehoiakim, in turn, was a descendant of King David. But listen to what God says to Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 22, 24 through 26. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. A signet ring was a ring with a, an emblem or a symbol cut into the top of it, and the owner of that signet ring could press that ring down into melted wax to leave the imprint. It was how a king put his official seal on documents. It was essentially the king's signature. If a king gave his signet ring to a, a servant, it basically bestowed the king's own authority upon that servant to accomplish whatever task the king had sent him out for. So when God said that uh, Kaniah was a signet ring that God was going to tear off and hurl into another country, he was saying in no uncertain terms that he was rejecting that king, and he was stripping him of his authority as king of God's people. And now in Haggai 2, God calls Zerubbabel his signet ring. And this is a reversal of God's rejection and a restoration of that kingly line, the line that Jesus himself would come from. Jesus is the one true king who will rule and reign over all the earth, 
in his eternal kingdom at the end of days. God in his sovereign might will shake the heavens and the earth. He will strike down the nations and they will bring their treasures to his eternal temple where he will dwell forever with his people. And there will be peace. That's what God promises in Haggai 2.9, that he will give peace in this place. The place here isn't the second temple and it's not even the promised land. The Jews would know no lasting peace from the time of Haggai up to now, up to the present day. In fact, in A.D. 70, uh, the Romans tore down the temple, the second temple, and there hasn't been another one built in Jerusalem since. So the peace that God promises in 2 verse 9 was obviously not meant to be in the days that Haggai prophesied, but rather it's the peace that will come when Jesus sits on the throne of the world. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ are members of that kingdom. And we await the day when our great King Jesus comes back to establish that kingdom upon the earth. If you are already his this morning, repent of your self-interest and give him the highest place in your hearts and your lives. If you don't know him, repent and be reconciled to him. And allow the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are a great and a gracious and a merciful and a generous God. And so you have generously given of your own son, Lord, to reconcile a sinful people to yourself. We thank you, Father, for that sacrifice. We thank you for that great love. We pray that um, these words would go deep into our hearts as we go out this week, Lord, that we would strive to ever repent of sin as it crops up in our lives and strive ever to walk with you and to know your peace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.